WABC. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. I found my field on Blueberry Hill. That is the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, singing in English, Blueberry Hill. Singing it pretty well, I must say, for somebody that is not a native English speaker. It's not too bad. Uh, we are looking at the Russia and Ukraine situation and scratching our collective heads. Are we going to see an armed conflict? If not, what is the way out of this conflict? And why, this is more my question, why does so much of the media coverage of this conflict that we seem to see, why does it seem to be so one-sided? And, you know, I tweeted yesterday that uh, we've been hearing for what seems like six months that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is imminent. Now, at some point, if it doesn't happen, how can they keep saying it's imminent? And then, of course, there were people who responded to that tweet by referring by saying that I'm uh, Neville Chamberlain trying to appease uh, the Nazis in 1939. So lo and behold, hey, uh, very, very happy to be joined by someone who has an interesting perspective on the Russia situation and somebody who uh, we just got great response to last time that he was on the show. Michael Averco. He's an independent foreign policy analyst and a media critic. Michael, thank you for joining me on the radio. Thank you for having me back, Frank. Let me ask you first about the criticism that's been leveled at me regarding appeasement. If we allow Vladimir Putin's aggression to go unchecked, does that send a poor message not only to Vladimir Putin but to other would-be aggressors that the United States will allow you to do whatever they want? Don't we need to stand up to Putin to make sure that this doesn't happen? Right. Well, I know you're parroting their view, and I'm totally opposed to this selective use of aggression. Um, Just very quickly, as I said the last time, when other countries, including the United States and Israel, use a military option, okay, whether in a threatening way or in an actual way, it's not called aggression. Uh, Putin has not attacked uh, Ukraine, and um, his troop buildup is simply a repositioning of troops that already existed in Russia that are not being increased. And the reason for this troop buildup, as Emmanuel Macron and others have suggested, is for something else other than uh, seeking to strike at Ukraine. Biden has uh, created this uh, conflict, which otherwise would not have uh, been uh, evident. And what I mean by that is November 10th, Anthony Blinken first uh, echoes this um, supposed situation. The U.S. domestic situation was looking rather glum. So now the Biden administration, by promoting this uh, conflict, they take attention away from the domestic situation. 
And uh, Biden, when he says it's imminent, if it doesn't happen, his comeback is going to be what Juan Williams said to Brit Hume around the time we last spoke on January 11th, that if Putin doesn't um, attack, well, it's because Biden, the tough guy, laid down what would happen to him. And that's why he's not doing it. And this is totally absurd because they weren't really planning to do this in the first place. So it's taking credit for something that... uh, wasn't going to happen in the first place. Some people have used the comparison. In fact, uh, even uh, John Katzmatidis, our owner on Sunday, used the comparison to the film Wag the Dog, where an unpopular president used the possibility of a foreign conflict to distract from domestic turmoil. Do you think that could be what's happening here? Yes, and to a certain extent, if you out there of age, back in 1999, Clinton was having uh, problems with Monica Lewinsky, and this is when the situation in Yugoslavia also got uh, trumped up a bit. See, the other thing, too, is if the Russians don't attack, the Biden administration has etched this image of a really bad, aggressive Russia. And so that's going to bolster the defense industry. Mm. And Candidates like getting contributions from defense contractors because they're very generous. You also have in bed with what I call a two-headed monster, the defense industry, which is looking to increase arms sales. And by the way, they're on record as admitting that increased conflict with Russia benefits them. You have this anti-Russian lobby of people from uh, with roots in Central and Eastern Europe who have an historical axe to grind against Russia. And it's no small surprise that at um, these defense contractor um, funded think tanks like the Atlantic Council and the Center for European Policy Analysis, they're stacked with these uh, people of an anti-Russian background from Eastern and Central Europe. Well, I'm not surprised to hear that at all. And uh, I'm guessing that's part of the reason why 80 to 90 percent of the Russia coverage we see is all about which political party can be tougher on Russia rather than what's the diplomatic solution out of here. You alluded to uh, France and uh, Emmanuel Macron. Putin met with uh, President Macron of France this week. And uh, as he was meeting with Macron, he addressed reporters and summed up what the two of them discussed. Um, Yes. Well, yeah, hang on. Let me play you the audio. Okay, sorry. I see how much effort the current France leadership and the president personally put to solve the crisis tied to providing equal security in Europe in a serious historic perspective and to solve the issue of Ukraine's internal crisis in the southeast of the country. President Biden, for what it's worth, is only ramping up the the Russia heated talk. And he is threatening to pull the plug on Nord Stream 2, which is a supply of energy that Germany is uh, is getting from Russia and purchasing from Russia. And Biden was asked about that this week, about what he would actually do to pull the plug on Nord Stream 2. This is what President Biden said. If, uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the... Uh, the, the border of Ukraine uh, again, then uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. What, do, what how will you how will you do that? Exactly. Since the project 
And control of the project is within Germany's control. We will, uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. To the Americans who are currently in Ukraine, should they leave the country? I think it'd be wise to leave the country. Uh, not, I don't mean our, I don't mean, I'm not talking about our diplomatic corps. I'm talking about Americans who are there. I hate to see them get caught in a crossfire if, in fact, they did admit And there's no need for that. And I, if I were they, if I had anyone there, I'd say leave. Michael, it doesn't seem that like President Biden is really on the same page with our NATO allies in France and Germany, is he? No, and he doesn't seem to show much concern for the American military personnel in their bolstering up the Kiev regime forces, which, by the way, include people with uh, rather extreme views that uh, support this controversial World War II Ukrainian uh, leader, Stepan Bandera, who collaborated with the Nazis. And that leads to another point, which you very much typically see downplayed by the Biden administration and his mass media minions here. This past November, um, Russia had a resolution passed in the U.N. General Assembly denouncing the glorification of Nazism. Now, I'll grant you there was a bit of a propaganda behind that, but there were only two countries which voted against it. The United States and Kiev regime controlled Ukraine. Countries as diverse as Iran and Israel voted for it. And when the U.S. government says, well, we don't like Nazism, but uh, we believe in the idea of, uh, you know, not persecuting opposing views. Well, let's look at their stance towards Julian Assange or towards Americans like myself who have been denied earning extra money writing articles for a Russian-based venue, which there's been no conclusive proof put forward that this uh, venue is doing anything especially uh, sinister other than the Biden administration doesn't uh, like their views. Um, At this point, we keep hearing war is imminent, war is imminent, President Biden sort of stoking the flames there, or maybe being cautious, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, by saying American personnel um, should leave, at least some Americans should leave, not the military personnel, as you mentioned. At this point, how likely do you think it is that we'll see a war take place by the end of this month? Uh, I don't think it's likely, and that's where I have some uh, disagreement with Douglas McGregor, who's on record believing that by the end of the month, they're going to take over territory east of the Dnieper River. I mean, Ukraine historically is an interesting uh, geographical mix. East of the Dnieper River, that area of Ukraine has had a longer period of togetherness with Russia. Subsequently, it's the most pro-Russian part. Now, central Ukraine, on the other hand, hasn't had as long a period, and that includes the capital of Kiev, but much longer than the part that was ruled by the Habsburgs in the West. So this is why you roughly see in western Ukraine very much against Russia, central Ukraine not as much, and eastern Ukraine sympathetic to Russia. Very um, in- Yeah, 
please. Uh, yeah, but like I said, no, the only way I could see Russia going into Ukraine is if the Kiev regime is foolhardy enough to launch an attack on Donbass. And I would be inclined to believe they wouldn't want to do it because not only would they lose, but the Biden administration and other Western nations said they would not get actively involved in that fight. And in that fight, the Kiev regime is likely to lose additional territory because right outside the rebel territory are populations that seem to be, if anything, more sympathetic towards Donbass rebels than the Kiev regime. So I really I don't think this is going to happen. Instead, we're going to see a long drawn out process. Macron has been able to apparently get the ball rolling in terms of having the two sides, Kiev and Donbass, sit down for the U.N. approved Minsk protocol calling for Donbass to have greater autonomy. But that's going to cause a lot of uh, problems because Kiev is going to go into it with the attitude, we're going to try to give them less autonomy as possible, whereas Donbass is going to take the opposite approach. But then there's a bigger uh, picture, perhaps, and that has to do with the positioning of Russian troops on Russian territory in European Russia. And this relates to Russia going back to the 1990s, consistently wanting to see a new security arrangement on the European continent. Uh, what would that new security arrangement look like? Okay, well, um, they don't like the idea of further NATO expansion. There were accords signed with the OSCE member nations, 57 nations, including all the former Soviet republics, Europe, all of NATO, which includes Canada and the United States. And according to these declarations that were signed in Astana and in Istanbul, what it says is that an expanded military alliance cannot be at the threat of another nation. Now, there are people out there who say, okay, that's true, but Russia's wrong in believing that NATO is a threat to Russia. But for Russia, NATO clearly is an existential threat, and this is something that many folks in the West don't understand, and I think it's worth to uh, get into. When you go back to when the Soviet Union broke up, Russia openly inquired about NATO membership, and this was met with astonished amusement. But a short time later, when Poland and some others sought NATO membership, that was taken seriously, but it also included some inaccurate uh, anti-Russian propaganda. And uh, NATO, in okaying this expansion, did not do anything to ease Russia's concerns about this negatively inaccurate propaganda. I'm referring uh, specifically, but not just exclusively to him, the late William Sapphire had a regular column in the New York Times where he essentially, in numerous occasions, said, look, NATO's been created to keep Russia down. Well, actually, the Soviet Union. Russia is an inherent threat according to Sapphire. Russia lost the Cold War. Russia doesn't like it. Too bad. And yes, Russia can't be in NATO because it's an inherent threat. Now, nobody in NATO slammed Sapphire saying, well, this is lousy history. 
Germany fought two wars against the West. Mm. Russia was allied with the West. The West itself has been at odds. When you look at the Napoleonic era, Napoleon the West, well, guess what? Austria, Britain, and Russia got together to defeat him. And then when we talk about, you know, history, the Soviet period is relatively short. You know, Britain fought two wars against this country and sympathized with the uh, Confederacy. So this idea that Russia is a threat is wrong. And back then, there was a good deal of pro-Western uh, sentiment in Russia. And that pro-Western sentiment turned sour the way this was being yeah. handled. And then in the late 1990s, well, in the 1990s, as Yugoslavia was breaking up, there was considerable bias against Serbs. And I detected that part of that bias stemmed from people in the foreign policy establishment looking at the Serbs as miniature Russians without nukes. You know, the Serbs have that funny Cyrillic alphabet and upside down <laughs> Russian flag. They're Orthodox Christian Slavs, and they're sympathetic to Russia. So I think that gave an extra zen to hit it to the uh, Serbs and bomb them. In the meantime, in Russia, they saw the bias of bombing the Serbs because it was, you know, a complex war. There was good and bad to be said on all the sides, but the Serbs were made the heavies. Russia saw this situation Michael, correctly. I, I got to run. I'm sure. sorry, we're out of time. I definitely appreciate you coming on. I'll look forward to our next conversation. Okay, Frank. Take Thank care. you. Uh, Michael Averko, uh, he is a uh, person that writes and studies issues related to foreign policy all over the place. And the lack of uh, equal time on issues of Russia that you see in the media, he's our go-to source. He's our version of equal time. 